Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, there are all sorts of theories of why we are so divided in terms of income. We talked about it last week on the podcast. There's education, ability, opportunity, the collapse of organized labor, inheritance, technology, your locality, or is it just your motivation? Well... Some or all of those will have some influence, but this week on the Debunking Economics podcast, we're joined by one man who believes the hierarchy is to blame, which is strange because as much as you read about income inequality, that is something that rarely, if ever, is mentioned. Until now, I'm Phil Dobby, and today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, the hierarchy of inequality. Now, a year and a half ago, Blair Fix wrote his dissertation at York University in Toronto on economics from the top down. Does hierarchy unify economic theory? Now, it's not all about income disparity, but it does get there and concludes that personal income is most strongly determined by hierarchical power. And Blair joins Steve and I today on the podcast. Blair, why don't we start uh, with you explaining why you started thinking about the linkage between income distribution and hierarchies. What started you off down that path? Uh, It was a very roundabout path that led me that way, actually. Uh, So I don't know if I want to go through the whole... Uh, all of the details because that would take, you know, it was years. But anyway, so I'll tell you, I went into my my PhD studies really interested in energy and peak oil and that kind of thing. And along the way, I started studying uh, firm sizes. And I found that firm sizes and actually governments in general got larger as energy use increased. And this was surprising. There's nothing in mainstream economics to suggest why that would happen. And so, to make a long story short, I ended up trying to explain that growth in t- of uh, firms in terms of hierarchy. So, there's this, um, there's this anthropologist named uh, Robin Dunbar who came up with something called Dunbar's Number. I don't know if uh, you're yeah. familiar with it. It's basically yeah. the idea that there's um, group size, human group size, and all primate group size is limited by brain size and in our ability to interact with other people. And so... One of the ways to get around that, to organize in large groups, is to um, to use hierarchy. Because basically, in a hierarchy, uh, you need to um, interact with your superior and maybe subordinates if you have them, and that basically can scale up indefinitely. So that's how I got into thinking about hierarchy. I was just thinking in terms mm. of energy, and then. I've always been interested in income inequality, but it wasn't really something I was studying directly. And uh, then I happened on this paper by uh, Herbert Simon. Herbert Simon was uh, an economist who actually won a, uh, a Nobel Prize or a quote-unquote Nobel Prize in economics for unrelated work. But in the 1950s, he published this really short paper where he, was, um, he made this model of hierarchy. And what he was trying to explain was CEO pay, and which was interesting to me because I'm interested in CEO pay. 
And what he had found, or what somebody else had found, and what he was trying to explain, was that CEO pay tends to increase with firm size. So if you're a CEO in a tiny firm, uh, you tend to earn you know, not that much money. But if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you earn a lot of money. So there was this really mm. tight correlation. And he wanted to explain why that was. And he basically made this model of hierarchy. And he basically said, look, if there's firms that are organized in a hierarchy, um, I can show mathematically that what will happen if income increases with your rank in the firm, what's going to happen is that the top-ranked employee, I mean, the CEO, their income is going to grow with CEO pay. And so he went through the math. And then basically, as far as I can tell, this model was forgotten. Um, it was published in the late 1950s, right when neoclassical economics was becoming um, more popular again. And it was basically forgotten. So I decided to try to revive it. And of course, when he was writing, when Herbert Simon was writing, he didn't have much data and he di certainly didn't have uh, good computers. And now we have all those things. So I ended up basically diving into the data that I could find on hierarchy and then also trying to simulate it to see what I could explain. So that's how I got into it. So the deeper the hierarchy, the more layers, the more the guy at the top or the woman at the top, probably sadly the guy at the top is, is earning. Is that the case? Yeah, and basically, sadly, we don't have that much data on the actual hierarchical structure of companies. Mostly, well, there's two mm. reasons. Mostly because it's proprietary data and also because economists are not interested in studying it. So yeah. mainly what I've shown is that the number of levels in, in the company is related to its size. So as the company grows, you add new ranks and, and that's how CEO pay scales yeah. up. And, and, Steve, um, and Steve, I guess, you know, that this sort of, uh, you know, if you, you've got to then question uh, the level of productivity uh, at each level. And, you know, this, this idea, the neoclassic or even, even, you know, Marx to an extent, the, the thinking that everybody is, is adding, labor is adding value. Uh, so everybody's adding value, and the more you, you more you're getting paid, the more value. We were sort of talking about this last week, weren't we? The more value supposedly you you are adding to the company. I mean, part part of the reason people have cognitive dissonance about the income distribution data is they're trying to make sense of it in terms of productivity, and they're trying to say the person at the top is adding an enormous amount of uh, output compared to the people at the bottom of the organization. Now there are some entrepreneurs who do innovate and create something absolutely new, uh, which. Edison is a classic example there, I yep. suppose. You're going to mention okay. Elon Musk here now, aren't you? Who I was going to, but I decided to retreat from that one. But he is actually one of the highest paid CEOs. Now, you would probably say in his case, perhaps he's worth it. Uh, he's certainly innovated, and, and it's, it's, it's actually probably more the pressure he puts on the rest of his company than his own specific inventions. It was the case for Edison. But there are, you know, there are, there's no way that SpaceX would exist uh, except for his pressure to try to get a, 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 a manned landing on Mars. And uh, and the the technology that's come out of that company is truly innovative. So I have you know an enormous amount of time for that as I do for Tesla, as you know. Um, but it's it, it then also looks, say for example, at um, 
Amazon with Jeff Bozos. I mean, he wrote the code that's established Amazon. So those are the sorts of arguments they use in favour. But you can't use that for Morgan Stanley. You can't use that for Goldman Sachs. You can't use it for a vast number of the uh, the, the post-innovator companies. And Blair, in your work, I mean, there's no real strong relationship, is there, between uh, productivity and income? It, it is your position in the company. Look, and I know people who are at the top of reasonably sized companies, and you ask them how they got there, and is it their expertise? And by and large, they say, no, it is just luck and circumstance. But Yeah. You know. Well, see, I come at it almost from the perspective of an anthropologist. And the unspoken assumption among anthropologists when they go out and study, um, um, you know, agrarian societies that exist now or even in the past, the assumption is that status, um, you're rewarded from status and that this has nothing to do with ability. So, you know, you take a, a feudal king and the feudal king's income is clearly from status. They've inherited that rank. And their income is from status. So that's the way anthropologists think. And then economists kind of make this clean break with the past where they would acknowledge that, yeah, the the feudal king earns income from their hierarchical status. But somehow uh, our companies now, our firms are completely different. Everything is meritocratous and you're earning income in proportion to your productivity. And I am extremely skeptical that we've made such a clean break from the past um, and and the problem with that that idea is you can you can make value judgments and say well Elon Musk deserves their income or not and that and anybody is allowed to make that value judgment but neoclassical economics tries to go a step further and they postulate that there's actually something we can measure to show scientifically show that income is proportional to productivity but they never actually manage to do that everything that they show is circular it's circular logic um, so that's the problem with that hypothesis is it's almost i would say untestable it's a value judgment it's basically masking uh, a value judgment and putting it in scientific form uh so that it looks you know, more objective. So why is it happening then? Why are we getting uh, this discrepancy in income, not just between the bottom and the top of the hierarchy, but the, the fact that the higher up you go, the bigger the, the incremental pay? You know, you once you go from middle management up to top layers, uh, you know, you, you, you're getting paid an extraordinary, extraordinarily large amount of money extra uh, for, for stepping up to the next level. Many, many factors that we poorly understand right now. One is that le- legitimacy is really linked to your your income would i don't know would you um be comfortable taking orders from a ceo who earned uh a tenth of your income say if you were an entry-level employee and the ceo earned a tenth of your income would you be comfortable taking orders from them it would there'd be a lot of cognitive dissonance there dissonance so one thing is that Mm. the way we think the way we see authority is linked to money. So if if somebody has authority, they kind of need to make more than you to back up that authority. But then the other side of it is just what I would say is power. People at the top have the power to set their salaries. And it's not surprising that they reward themselves. There's nothing surprising. So how much of that is is hereditary? Because if it was based purely on on performance and, and ability, 
then we would see a real mix, wouldn't we, of CEOs? We'd see them from different ethnic backgrounds, uh, uh, different uh, economic backgrounds, different genders, different birthplaces, but we don't see that. They're, you know, largely still middle-aged and white, sadly. It's a good point, and I've actually tried to quantify that, tried to look at all the different kind of factors that might affect income and see how, how much they actually affect income. And, and intelligence or, or measured intelligence is uh, minuscule, a- absolutely minuscule, the, the effect that that has on income, um, which is not surprising. <laughs> There's so many other things that are more important. Um, and if we lived in a true meritocracy, you would, um, you know, you wouldn't see coherent classes. Why are CEOs, vast majority of them white men? Why have the vast majority of them gotten MBAs from elite universities? Um, there's so many factors about it that just scream that this is about uh, social ranking. Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, I guess you know, in the in the olden days, before economics was uh, thought of. You know, society did the, the the person at the top was either there by right of birth, or they fought their way to the top. They were the strongest person in in, in the tribe. Um, so I guess that was merit, meritocracy of some sort, wasn't it? At least, at least they had one skill; they could le- beat the living daylights out of everyone else. Well, that's that's the very first founder. That's the Genghis Khan theory, um, and 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 that is is what you what you find historically as well. If there's some enormously powerful, enormously successful conqueror at one point in a, in a hierarchy, then for a while at least, that uh, the descendants of that of that uh, conqueror. Uh, become um, enormously powerful at the top of a hierarchy. What I find fascinating about Blair's work, and and I think we both have to have a bit of a chat about how we uh, found each other's uh, research, Blair, uh, at some point in the conversation. But was it, it, it gives a sense of continuity between different social systems because if you look back at the uh, very early, the, uh, if you go back to the Cro-Magnon life when, when we were back at the stage where we lived in small groups and we and we only had the capacity to communicate with about 150 others. And that was, of course, the size that after Dunbar came up with the Dunbar number, that's what the anthropologists found was the average size of uh, of human settlements at the time. They defeated that to some extent uh, by being organised into tribes, and uh, the tribes might have, you know, 30 or 40 communities of that size. And over, as, as uh, David Graeber is now looking into, you'd find that during winter festivals and summer festivals, they'd come together. They would have a hierarchical system, a winter king and a, a summer king and things of that nature. Uh, but generally, 7,000 was about as big as they got. Uh, but then along comes agricultural society, and you start getting enormous societies like the Sumerian and the Egyptian and so on. And and again, with no argument that your position in the hierarchy determines your your relative income and your wealth in those societies. And lo and behold, capitalism is the same thing with a market structure rather than uh, within, with uh, uh, inherited power or directly in, directly inherited power from one generation to another. So that continuity I find quite remarkable. So if we, if we want to get rid of uh, the, the extent of uh, the disparity of income in society then, do we need to, do we need to break down these hierarchies? Is that the, is that the answer? And if that is the answer, how do, how do companies function? I know there's, you know, companies do try and say, well, let's have less of a, let's have a, less of a rigid structure. Let's go for more of a, a holacracy rather than a, a hierarchy perhaps. And, you know, I've been, in large organizations, you get cross-functional teams and you know maybe the idea is you have lots of groups that you know are somewhere around the Dunbar number and they all sort of work in their own particular areas 
and maybe need less uh, less hierarchy sitting on top of those those groups. I mean, it's talked about, but we still we still have this huge income discrepancy. Again, a complicated question. I know some some people want to do. I, I hang around with some anarchists sometimes, and they want to do away with hierarchy. And I'm extremely skeptical that that's possible. The whole um, trajectory of human history since agriculture is towards more hierarchy in terms of larger institutions that are hierarchically organized. So the idea that we could get rid of inequalities by doing away with hierarchy basically is advocating to go back 10,000 years and live as hunter-gatherers. Now, some people may want to do that, but I don't. And so the alternative is to try to somehow limit um, the excesses of those at the top. And I think there's a lot of ways to do that government can get involved but it, it's also just a matter of, of culture um, in Japan for instance it's just accepted that CEOs will earn maybe 10 times the the average workers income uh, and that's about what it was like in the US in the 1950s and 60s it was just part of the culture and they also in Japan have very flat hierarchies so the the CEOs and, and upper-level management will have um, a, a big, they'll have a lot of subordinates to um, supervise. And they, and they work like 12-hour days. Um, so this crazy work culture. But the, the, it, there's a lot of elements that go into it. I think getting rid of, of hierarchy is completely unrealistic. Um, regulating it and clamping down on excesses, which means basically taking action from the bottom up is the best way to go about but it. But why do those excesses happen? I mean, why? what what happened in America to take it away from being like in, in Japan? What would stop uh, a company that's paying its executives massive amounts of money? What would stop another company coming along and saying, gee, we could save a lot of money in competition with these guys if we just didn't pay quite so much to our top team? I mean, because it might be, I'll actually have the first go to answer, and you can follow up later if you don't mind, because I think that a large part of why the income disparities rose in America was neoclassical economics in the first place, because that gave a justification for saying that the top person earns because they've got greater productivity. And that justified, it gave an ideological justification to an enormous pay disparity. Whereas if you see the actual system, the hierarchy manages, the firm itself, uh, as the creative force, then there's an argument to restrain the income disparities between the top and the bottom. Now, I can vividly remember my father's experience as a bank manager in the Commonwealth Bank back when it was both uh, government-owned but also when it... Uh, uh, it was really it's seen as the collective wisdom of the staff in general that generated the pay. My father was responsible for for automating their accounting system and for bringing in the auto tellers, and he earned a pretty average. Uh, you know, middle-class clerical-type salary. Uh, when After my father died and when the bank became privatised, my mother would still go along to the bank functions. And she was one of them, she, was in, she was, had a guy pointed out to him saying, he does what Albie used to do and he earns about 20 times what Albie was paid. And they had this enormous income disparity elevating people above the... Um, the pay rate of those below them in the belief that they were being rewarded because they were more productive, not because they were higher up the hierarchy. Whereas if you think except it's a hierarchy and the, and the organisation as a whole produces it, then you can get that Japanese result where there's a deliberate compression of the income range from the bottom to the top. 
Blair, your I opinion. agree. I, I, I think that ideology is much more important than most people and even most social scientists um, give it credit for it. I mean, our ideas shape our actions in ways that we don't even think about. But to kind of make that concrete, um, you know, there's always uh, an, a pressure for those at the top to increase their income. Well, not a pressure, but a self-interest. And anybody in that position would want to do the same. If you have the power to raise your income, you're going to try. But there's always typically countervailing powers. So labor unions uh, basically fight for the wages of those at the bottom. And when they do that, they automatically limit excesses at the top. So you have to have that pushback. And ideology comes in. If you tell people in a labor union, well, you're getting your what you deserve anyway, you're, you know. And a labor union is actually a distortion. Yeah, your marginal product, and a labor union is actually a distortion of the free market. You start to buy into that. Um, you're not going to want to pay your union dues, and um, you know. So the whole thing, and there's a really tight correlation between income inequality in the U.S. and uh, the disintegration of. Of labor unions. Hence, hence that difference yeah. between the U.S. and Japan. Then, yeah, and well, but see, Japan is is different because, I, as far as I know, unions have not um, been what's limited CEO pay. That it's there's just a basic a culture uh, in Japan that that's not what you do. Um, you get paid so what you're worth. That is- Imagine that. So, is there a um, oh God, scandalous thinking? So, is there a, is there a, 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 any evidence that companies that have a, a a high hierarchy or the or the people at the top are getting paid a disproportionately large amount of money versus uh, the people uh, further down the uh, down the triangle? Is there is there any evidence that those companies are more productive than the ones where the top pay isn't so big? I'm not aware of any. Uh, good evidence for that. Uh, so they're giving themselves top pay without any justification for it on that basis. No, and, and actually CEO pay is is highly correlated with stock market returns. Mm. And of course now companies, the big companies are slavishly devoted to buying back their own stock because then they can increase its value and the CEO's pay goes up. So it's not very surprising. It's just... Uh, almost impossible to to measure productivity at the at the firm level they all firms all make different commodities um, so there's something called the aggregation problem when you try to to um, aggregate different commodities and compare them you inevitably get this circularity and so economists when they make claims about productivity are actually measuring it in terms of an income they'll say a firm is productive if its sales are greater but sales is related to the price of the commodity. It's actually an in a form of income of the firm. So to claim that you're measuring productivity is basically circular because you're explaining one form of income, say pay, yeah. in terms of another form of income, the firm's income. So it's all circular. Uh, they never yeah, it's, actually. It's pretty get difficult, it. isn't it, to compare, for example, a company that extracts minerals from the earth with a, a company that publishes magazines. Exactly. I mean, how, I, how? What is the productivity of a musician compared mm. to a, a farmer? It's a, it's a, a moot question. It's a value judgment, not anything science can tell. So, us. what about uh, you, you talked about? You know, share buybacks and that sort of thing, and that's all an element of power as well, isn't it? So. You, you know, to be at the top, you 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 accumulate power, which obviously makes it easier for you to get other to get other jobs. I'm just wondering how you get into that position 
uh, in the first place. And we've said it's not related to, it's not equal. It, it, it's, it's your upbringing, isn't it? So how much of this actually is a bit like the old system? Maybe you don't fight your way to the top, but I wonder how much of it is, is inherited. You know, you've, in, you've inherited the right family, the right education. Uh, you've got a, a good start on life. Yeah, well, we've gotten rid of the overt inherited aspect of it, like a, mm. a class system, uh, a feudal class system, obviously. But there's tons of work showing that in intergenerational mobility uh, is more limited the more the inequality there is in a society, which is kind of counterintuitive um, if, if you think about it. Um, so, so basically, there's all these mechanisms. There was just this huge scandal. Um, was it Harvard where these um, celebrities were, were basically bribing their way to get their children into elite universities? Um, so all these ways to basically uh, maintain your status from one generation to another. Not a single way like there was in feudalism, but many ways now. And it's not perfect. Obviously, it is possible to, to climb your way up a hierarchy. But it becomes increasingly different, difficult, it seems, the more um, unequal the hierarchy it is. So it was easier to do that, say, work your way up a company in the 1960s, uh, which would be my grandparents' generation, than it was in the 1980s. And now it's very, very difficult to to go from the bottom to the top of a of From a the bottom to the middle is the best you're going to do, isn't it? And then, I mean, which is in a large company is the, you know, the furthest I've ever got. And, um, and, you know, a lot of companies, particularly large companies, have said, well, okay, we need to make cuts. We're going to cut a whole tier of middle management. Out they go. And actually, the company's productivity increases <laughs> as a result of this, which sort of makes a mockery of the whole thing, doesn't it? Well, their profit goes up, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, whether their productivity does or not. Exactly. They're making bigger profits, and maybe, then maybe only for a year or so. Yeah, and so this I, – I would like to study all these things. I honestly have not studied how that relates to hierarchy, and very few people have. But I think it's something that that we need to do if we want to actually – study the realities of our world and not a fiction. And I think that's the trouble. The fictions have actually led us into this massive level of inequality because, as you say, a social convention can constrain the gap in pay between the top and the bottom of the corporate hierarchy, as happens in Japan. But if you go for the ideology saying we're actually getting paid what you're worth, uh, then it actually get, you get this pot and you undermine the unions and stop them having an oppositional role in setting pay distribution inside the company. Then you get these enormous income disparities that apply in America. And then I think you get the, the, the consequence we're seeing at that of corporations like Boeing, which now can't even make planes that fly anymore. Uh, people want all the people want to think. Actually, the best thing happening about coronavirus for Boeing might be nobody wants to get in a plane for another reason apart from it being Boeing. So um, that that is a sign of the, the growth of hierarchy actually de decaying what the firm, what the corporation is is uh, capable of. And I think it's uh, there's a good argument for saying we need social conventions to constrain inequality, even though the hierarchy itself will generate a level of, na of in a sense, innate inequality. Yeah. So uh, the is this the, the nub then of, of uh, or are there other factors? Is, if we look at inequalities in society, can we just point and say, well, it is, it's the hierarchy within organisations. It's the, the people at the top are being paid too much, the people at the bottom are not paying enough, and it's the structure of the corporate world which is responsible for that, or are there other factors at play? Well, there are many factors. I would say that's the dominant factor. And, and mm. I'm sticking my neck out when I say that because I've, you know, economists criticize me 
constantly. But I, I think that's what the evidence shows, and uh, I'm convinced that more research we did, that we would find that more and more. And it, and like Steve said, it's consistent with our the whole of human history, um, which is basically since agriculture has been a trend towards more hierarchy, and hierarchy is always how we distribute resources. Those at the top get more than those at the bottom. How much more is a complicated question that depends a lot on culture. Um, so I, that's something that we, we need to understand. So, so um, Steve, I mean, I've, I've spoken to you with you about this before, and you, you said I was dreaming. This idea that, uh, you know, as, as someone who's a freelancer who can provide value to, to, to organizations, uh, you know, if more and more people work like that and companies outsourced a, a great deal more and bought in services, specialist services, you'd need less of this hierarchy and you'd have less inequality. But uh, you said that when I suggested that, you said, yeah, that was just, I was, that was my utopian vision and I was dreaming. Was that effect? <laughs> um, well, partly because there must be a reason why large corporations grow in the first place. And this is, like, if it was true that, um, mm. that yeah, the, the neoclassical vision applied, you, you pretty much have owner, owner-managed firms. Uh, they, even in their bloody models, they've got owner, owner firms that were owned by the worker himself who earns both profit and wages, all this sort of nonsense. And they push the idea of a competitive market and a competitive economy being better than a monopolised one. But if that were true, you wouldn't get these large corporations in the first place. Has your research shown anything about that, Blair? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was, I'm just writing an article about it um, in a kind of very expansive way that the in the in the natural sciences this idea in economics of that free markets are the best way to organize is just completely at odds with uh, basically evolutionary theory so in in free market theory the idea is that if you stoke the self-interest of individuals this will automatically be good for Society, and that's just completely at odds for from what we understand in evolutionary theory. In evolutionary theory, you look at social species. There's always a trade-off between the group and the individual, and what's good for the group tends not to be what's best for an individual. So, say you're in an army, charging uh, towards a, you're going to war and you're going to charge into battle. It's in your self-interest to mute, like flee, basically run off the front line. But if everybody does that, then the group fails. So there's this basically um, <clears throat> the interest of the group and the interests of individuals don't align. And in biology, then, we expect to have these mechanisms within groups that keep individuals in line. And I think that hierarchy is one of these mechanisms. Yeah, I was going to say, because in an army, it's your commander, isn't it, who's keeping, exactly. keeping you in check. So we, it's just obvious yeah. that in armies, the solution is hierarchies. And, and there's a really good book about this by uh, an, a biologist turned uh, anthropologist named Peter Turchin. He wrote a book called Ultra, Ultra Society. Oh, yes. Ten, yeah. It's about uh, how 10,000 years of war made humans the greatest cooperators on Earth. Or something like that. And he argues basically what I just said, that hierarchy is how we organize, and it's especially effective at mobilizing large armies, and large armies beat small armies, and that's why we have hierarchy. So now we're, we're not no longer constantly at war. The competition has moved into the market. Yeah. But that you can argue that's why we have large firms, because they can organize tens of thousands of people um, effectively, uh, imagine Walmart 
being um, two million uh, self-organized, uh, self-employed people magically producing the Walmart supply chain through the market. <laughs> It just defies belief. And that's why your thing was a fantasy field, because you have to do everything. How foolish of me to even suggest it. Absolutely. How foolish of me to. Uh, I, I see the error of my ways now. So, it's, so in conclusion, I mean, it's, it, we have to have it in that case. And we're saying it is the, it is the, the primary reason for, for inequality in society. And the only way then, following through that logic, the only way we're going to reduce inequality is to look at these corporations and say, well, okay, we need to put some sort of regulation because it's not going to happen. Self-interest means it's not going to happen yeah, any yeah. other way. We I, need to put in place regulations. I, I see it as a hierarchy as a double-edged sword. It's, it's absolutely necessary for organization, uh, for managing complex activities in an industrial society. I can't see any way to do without it. And yet it is corrosive in that the people at the top can use their power um, to hoard resources, to enrich themselves. And, and I think that double-edged nature of hierarchy has been there from the beginning, and, and societies that do well manage to um, limit the excesses. And if they don't limit the excesses, they they get beat yeah. out by societies that Mate, do. That, that's that's a that's a nice point to end the actual uh, theoretical Great. stuff on. But I'm fascinated by how you develop the skills you've got as well. And that Phil wouldn't be as aware of this because he didn't actually read your PhD thesis, which of course I did when you invited me to be your examiner. I'm, I'm going to read yeah. it now. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, um, I you know, a bit of background here. I got a request from Blair. I think you must have found my stuff on the internet at some stage and wrote to me when I was working in energy. I think. And I got an invite to come and examine your PhD. And the main reason I, I agreed was I thought I was going to meet Nitchin, uh, your supervisor, of course, neither of whom turned up to the, uh, to the meeting. So I'd given this talk in a week long of talks in Ecuador where the little buggers over there worked my ass off and I was totally exhausted. And I flew from Amsterdam to Ecuador and then Ecuador to Toronto to examine your PhD. And I read the PhD on the flight from Ecuador to uh, Toronto, and I was blown away, I must say, by the originality of your work and by the incredibly uh, effective graphics you'd developed. And those the the combination of the empirical, uh, strongly empirical grounding you had, plus those magnificent charts, made it one of the greatest PhDs I've ever read. And in terms of you've contributed to, I'd put it in the top three of PhDs they've ever been involved with. Um, so just a bit of background. How did you develop those skills? Where did they come from? And they're talking about the programming, the graphics, and so sure. on, as well as the, the empirical grounding. Uh, you're very kind, Steve, as always. Um, I'm very realistic, too. He Matt. never says anything nice to me, by the way. Blair. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you've got a great yeah. face for radio. What, what can I say? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to credit the empirical side to Jonathan Nitson. Okay. Who had, uh, so, a bit of my background. I I went into my my master's degree and my PhD almost, I would say, as a Marxist, um, and so I was going in a very non-empirical direction, as most Marxists tend to do, just kind of getting sucked into the logic and the abstract theory. And when I took Jonathan Nitzen's course, so he's a, a professor at York University, uh, he's a political economist, and very empirical. He basically said, you know, that, that stuff, um, it's not science. If you want to do science, you need to do empirical research. Hmm. That means you need to go out and find data and learn how to manipulate that. So he was really the impetus, and I loved it. 
I, I loved working with databases and, you know, I just spend hours and hours and hours t playing around with the data, seeing what was there. And as part of that, I, I eventually learned how to use um, R, which is a very popular statistical programming language now. Um, and so when I was uh, first in university 20 years ago, I hated programming, absolutely hated it. But it's come a long way, and now mm. I love it. So I, I basically, you know, taught myself. I didn't take any courses. Um, I just kind of, um, you know, stumbled along with the data, trying to visualize it as I could. And, um, you know, it took years and years. Um, but I don't know of any tricks other than, you know, spending a lot of time playing with data and trying to visualize it in a way that makes sense to you and then showing it to other people, see if it makes sense to them. Well, that's certainly what you achieved. And uh, I feel like we can actually, with the podcast, if we can attach Blair's PhD thesis to it, I'd like people to see what I'm talking about. A bit of about lockdown here. reading. Absolutely, we can do that, can't we, Blair? Um, <laughs> yeah. Great to yeah. talk, and thanks for coming on. And uh, uh, I, I guess a final question, I mean, given that, you know, lots of companies are going to be going to the wall. And uh, I'm just wondering what the what I wonder what the effect of, of COVID nineteen is going to have on all of this. Are we going to find that you know as as economies start to uh, fall apart to a certain extent, uh, are they just going to jump back in in the same form? Are we going to go through a period, for example, where we perhaps have even greater uh, income disparity because it's the ones at the top who are losing their jobs? Yeah, the ones at the bottom who are losing their jobs. Yeah, I say. yeah, it's hard to say right now. On the one hand, CEO pay. Is, is somewhat being scaled back, and yet stock returns are still, um, you know, outpacing wages by a long shot. Yeah, uh, crazily so, so. It's hard to say, um, but when we have these big uh, events in history that kind of unify uh, populations, that tends to be when inequality decreases. So, for instance, mm. World War II unified the whole... Um, U.S. population, and then there was a massive decrease in in inequality, and you know the top marginal tax rate went up to ninety percent, just unthinkable these days. But when when cultures get unified by some external threat, they tend to lower inequality. Whether that will happen, and I think after, yeah, I ha after things go back to normal, I have no idea. What's your take, Steve? I've got a feeling it will. I think I've got a feeling it will because I've been realizing the most important, the most valuable workers we have right now are nurses and sanitation workers. And uh, believe me, they get, pardon the pun, they get shit pay. And uh, we know they're putting their lives on the line, taking out the garbage, putting lives on the line, taking care of patients with uh, coronavirus. And uh, we're likely to see a respect for them elevate dramatically and respect for the, particularly the financial hierarchy, plunge. Mm. So it, it won't necessarily be a, a peaceful process, but I think the, the same sort of sense of, 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 of social solidarity that came out of the Second World War is likely to come out of the coronavirus. I certainly hope it will. So that regulation around hierarchies, then the, you know, the difference in pay between the people at the bottom of the ladder and the people at the top might actually be might be the uh, the, the positive outcome from all of this. We, I hope so. We can hope. Yeah. All right. Or we just go back to the way it was before. I have to say, I'm a bit cynical. I'm not sharing your enthusiasm, Steve. <laughs> I suspect, give it a couple of years, it'll all be forgotten about, and it'll be just how it was. But anyway, we'll see. Time will tell. Great to talk. Blair. 
Blair. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, my Thanks, pleasure. Blair. Thank okay, you. Mate. And if you get a cool. chance, do read Blair's thesis. It is on the uh, webpage that goes with this podcast, either at debunkingeconomics.com or on Steve's Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen. Uh, we'll be back again with another one fairly soon. I'm Phil Dobby. Steve Keen was with us as well, of course, and Blair Fix this week. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. 